This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabbar. Ten years in Afghanistan, but what's the legacy for British forces? America warns NATO allies that spending cuts will compromise security. There are legitimate questions about whether, if present trends continue, NATO will again be able to sustain the kind of operations that we have seen in Libya and Afghanistan. And the Tories talk defence post-SDSR. Tomorrow, it'll be 10 years since the start of the conflict in Afghanistan. British and American forces began airstrikes there on October the 7th, 2001. So what's been achieved in that time? And will the plan to withdraw combat troops by the end of 2014 succeed? I'm joined by uh, Christopher Lee, our defence analyst in the studio. Um, Christopher, what kind of a place is Afghanistan today compared to just over 10 years ago? Uh there probably isn't much comparison. Um, one of the difficulties is that commanders, especially NATO commanders, have to say, we have improved things, and that is certainly true in certain areas. But what you've also got to grasp is the huge difference, we, it, the coincidence of technology. Ten years ago, when the, in December 2001, when the Americans went in and started bombing, what happened is that Taliban, uh, almost a ragtag organisation, no organisation really, skedaddled and went across the border into Afghanistan. And at the same time, from the Central Asian Republics, fighters started to come down into Waziristan. And then they started to regroup. But it wasn't until 2006, when the British actually went into Helmand, for example, it wasn't until then that the Taliban started to emerge as a, as a sophisticated organisation, or more sophisticated. And it did so without any charismatic leader. There was no Osama bin Laden, this sort of figurehead, uh, as much as they would like to uh, think so. It was also the coincidence of technology. It was the, uh, the way you could now use predators to go after people, the way that you could actually now have the Internet. When we went into, in 2001, into Afghanistan, very few people had heard of Google. Mm. Now it's a verb, and everybody uses it. Everybody uses the Internet. I'll give you one example. The Taliban now have the power, and they do it, to order the mobile telephone servers to close down in the mornings. Mm. And they do it, and that shows how they've advanced. Well, joining us now from Kabul is the BBC's Paul Wood. Um, Paul, you've reported widely on the situation in Afghanistan to mark this anniversary. How strong do you see the Taliban being at the moment? Well, as Christopher was saying, it's been a game of two halves. The Taliban were easily removed with a few weeks of bombing and the US using essentially proxy forces in 2001 and then um, they switched their focus to Iraq because it seemed like a classic peacekeeping, uh, peacekeeping operation in Afghanistan. Uh, and then the neo-Taliban, the new Taliban came back in 2006 or so just coincidentally when Britain went into Helmand province. And the, the Taliban are being beaten back today, but they haven't been comprehensively beaten. And this is why I think military commanders and political leaders, both in Afghanistan and in London and in Washington, recognize now there is no purely military solution to the conflict. This has to be ended as insurgencies have classically been ended with some kind of political deal. Um, it's also the case that this, uh, this will be 
increasingly an Afghan war as we go towards the end of 2014 when uh, transition takes place. And most uh, Western officials will say privately and some publicly that Afghanistan will still be a violent place after the end of 2014. They hope to have degraded the Taliban sufficiently, as the military put it, that the Afghans can handle this on their own. But they won't be, uh, uh, they'll still be there. There'll still be a problem for the Afghan authorities, just it is hoped a more manageable problem. You say the Taliban has been beaten back, but not beaten. What kind of influence do they have on local communities? It depends where you go, because the Taliban are many different organisations, some of them quite locally based, some of them are just the local narco-mafia who fly the Taliban flag as, as a form of convenience. Um, others are the famous $10 a day Taliban, are just in it for the money, and some of them are quite ideologically committed. Now, where resources have been put in by NATO, and bear in mind that in Helmand, the number of boots on the ground has been tripled with an influx of 20,000 US Marines. Where those resources have been put in, uh, the Taliban are looking a bit weary, and I've spoken to Taliban fighters in Helmand province, uh, one in particular sticks out. He said he'd been doing this for five or six years. The village had had a shura. They decided to start and fight a jihad against British and other NATO forces. And in his group of 100, he told me, there were just 30 left. The rest had uh, mostly been killed. Some had disappeared. And he was tired of it. He said that when his very charismatic commander left or was killed, he would not continue. And yet elsewhere in the country, you can see in the east, for instance, uh, where there have been fewer resources put in, the Taliban are gaining ground and gaining territory. And this is the difficulty that the Afghan government and NATO has in dealing with the insurgency. Um, they may be uh, having success in Helmand and in Kandahar, uh, but in Paktir and uh, Paktika and Kost and uh, Kunar and provinces like that, uh, the Taliban are resurgent. I think, Paul, I remember in one of your reports this week, in the East, you met an Afghan National Army soldier, from there anyway, and his brother. Tell us a bit more about them. Well, this, uh, this is a divided family, and actually this is not as unusual as you might think. They're from the province of Wardak, where the Taliban, one of those places where the Taliban have been making gains. And it was quite an interesting contrast. The younger brother was the Talib. He was aged 20, had been with the insurgency since he was, since he was 16. And the older brother was 27 and had been in the Afghan army for six years. Now, you'd normally expect the dynamic in a traditional society like this to be the older brother in charge, very much calling the shots. But the older brother took a back seat. Uh, and while his very forceful, uh, quite ideological younger brother was explaining how, um, when I asked him, would you be prepared to kill your brother, how the jihad might require him to kill his brother, his father, whatever it took, he would carry on this struggle. And the contrast with his brother was quite telling. His brother said, well, I'm just in it for the money. There's no jobs in Wardak. I, I, I draw my salary uh, as a, a lieutenant, a second in command of a unit of 80. But really, when I go back to my home village at night to see my parents, it's the Taliban who control the roads, the Taliban have checkpoints at night. And uh, I'm not particularly committed to this. I'm just in it for the money. And I think, although that's just one family, that kind of contrast is very worrying for NATO. If you've got uh, Afghan soldiers not really um, committed to the fight and uh, the ideological Taliban compared to, prepared to die and, and do anything for it, that really uh, is not a very helpful comparison to make. Of course, NATO would say that that's just one family and there are others uh, who might tell a different story. Christopher, what does this conflict mean for the future of our forces and what is the legacy, do you think? Well, the legacy, um, I mean, the legacy, I think, is perception. Um, it's taken a great deal of time for people in Whitehall, for example, that I talk to, to grasp the fact that the key to Afghanistan is probably Pakistan. Um, 
And you've got to get on to that. You've got to understand, for example, if you talk about the Punjabi Taliban and the Haqqani, uh, Paul was mentioning uh, Paktia, the, we're into the third generation of this Haqqani sort of... I know, mafia, you might even call it. And some ideas that, for example, they are in Pakistan. They're in Waziristan, where everybody skedaddled to after the, when the bombing started. They quite often turn up at the border to cross over in Pakistan military vehicles. And there's all this sort of suggestion that it's, it's either condoned by, by certain elements of the Pakistan intelligence services or, or the military. The reason, by the way, they turn up in, in Pakistan military uh, uh, vehicles is that the Americans won't fire a predator at a Pakistan military vehicle. And it's that complication, I think, and that understanding of terrorism and the systems that are used against it, I think that is, if there is a legacy, which I'm not sure there is, but if there is a legacy, that's probably it. Uh, Paul Wood, do you, do you think this will be the last we hear of a so-called war on terrorism? Well, the war on terror as a term has now been dropped by the Americans. Um, and as Christopher was saying, you know, it's, it's not just about men in caves. It is about relationships between states. And President Karzai for a long time said that the international community is fighting the wrong war in the wrong country. And the address for what he calls terrorism is in Pakistan. Um, classically, uh, you cannot beat an insurgency if you can't seal the border. And the Taliban has had safe havens over the border in Pakistan, able to go back there and refit, rearm take a rest over the winter and then come back and fight. Now, the Pakistanis would say, well, we have lost not hundreds, but thousands of men in the campaign in the tribal areas. And if we start beating them uh, on our side of the border, they'll just go back into, into Afghanistan. Um, so this is a multifaceted and rather complex problem, but certainly um, Pakistan is, is one of the avenues of approach. Um, the problem is if the Americans start to squeeze Pakistan, if they say, well, we're going to remove some of the billions in support that we give you, um, do you then precipitate uh, a change of power there and a regime which is far less conducive to your interests uh, than what exists presently? And that is certainly uh, something that the Pakistanis are no doubt saying privately whenever there is criticism of them by the United States and others. But there is a feeling that, that some kind of momentum is building for some kind of showdown between the US and Pakistan. Uh, there's so much evidence of support for the Haqqani network and others from the Pakistani intelligence services. I think that is coming. All right, Paul Wood in Kabul, thank you very much for your time today. Well, as we've been hearing, a lot of things have changed in the last 10 years. British troops have been fighting in Afghanistan. In fact, a decade on, the army is a very different machine. Since almost every piece of equipment has been upgraded or replaced in order to handle the demands of desert warfare, Will Inglis reports on the changing kit. Ten years ago, the army and Royal Marines were still deployed in Kosovo and equipped to fight in Europe. With the start of hostilities in Afghanistan, out when the jungle pattern camouflage and in came elements, at least, of Desi's. Colour Sergeant John Tyler says that at the time they couldn't see anything wrong with the old kit. The kit fitted well. It was uh, fairly light. It does the job. Uh, when we were wearing this in 2001, we thought we were going to be in this for a, a long time. Uh, obviously, with the progression with the, a newer rifle, the A2 come out, obviously, a year later. Yeah, we thought that was pretty much the best we were going to get for the time being. That change had been long planned to get over the notoriously poor reliability of the SA-80A1. But since then, there have been even more enhancements. Royal Marine Colour Sergeant Jed Owens is part of the Infantry Trials and Development Unit in Warminster. They've worked on all the new kit, including the latest modifications to the SA-80. It's dramatically changed in appearance. Uh, working from the front, uh, we've got on the, the bottom, bottom of the weapon system the laser light module, uh, which is part of 
the new uh, fist sweet kit. We got the the lightweight day sight, which is also referred to as the LCAM. Uh, apart from that, the the magazine itself is now polycarbonate, which pretty much saves half the weight uh, on the soldiers and what they what they're carrying. To Sam, the frontline soldier of today, next to his counterpart from 10 years ago, it's hard to recognise they're even from the same army. Gone are the black boots, replaced by desert boots, better suited to the extreme temperatures of the Afghan summer. From there on up, the Combat 95s are gone, replaced by a multi-terrain pattern designed by psychologists to blend into almost any background. The body armour provides vastly better protection. Even the underpants are especially designed to protect major blood vessels. It's all because the IEDs of Helmand are another threat altogether from the Soviet-era minefields of Bagram. W01 Tim Newton is Britain's most senior infantryman. Since my first tour in 2001, uh, where our, our training was, was not far off what we would do in Northern Ireland, uh, whereas uh, 10 years on, our training now is absolutely fantastic um, and is, is completely focused on uh, the threat uh, and also um, how to secure the population, which is, which is equally as important. Personal kit is just one area where there have been changes. The only armoured vehicle currently used in Afghanistan that was even around in 2001 is the trusty Warrior. The rest have been replaced with off-the-shelf purchases better equipped to survive bomb blasts. But as with personal kit, these urgent operational requirements face an uncertain future at the end of hostilities in Afghanistan. It would take massive amounts of money to make them permanent additions. Still to come, the Conservatives emerge from the other side of the defence cuts with a renewed sense of purpose and dogs of war, why the work of man's best friend is so vital to the military. U.S. Secretary of State for Defence Leon Panetta has warned NATO allies that spending cuts on both sides of the Atlantic risked weakening the alliance's military capability in a way that could be devastating to both American and European security. Mr Panetta is in Brussels for his first meeting with NATO defence ministers. Speaking in Brussels earlier this week, Mr Panetta said there were what he called capability gaps being exposed at a time when every defence minister was facing great fiscal challenges at home. By one estimate, here in Europe, defense spending has dropped almost 2% annually for a decade, at a time when many European nations have been conducting operations in Afghanistan, Libya, Kosovo, and elsewhere. As a result, much-needed modernization investment has been deferred. There are legitimate questions about whether, if present trends continue, NATO will again be able to sustain the kind of operations that we have seen in Libya and Afghanistan without the United States taking on even more of the burden. He urged member countries to coordinate their cuts and pool their capabilities rather than make decisions in a vacuum. Recognizing the financial and political realities we face, we need at a minimum to coordinate additional cuts, avoid surprises, and ensure that our limited resources are being put into the most efficient and effective defense programs. We cannot afford for countries to make decisions about force structure and force reductions in a vacuum, leaving neighbors and allies in the dark. This must be a transparent and cooperative process. 
Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is still with us. Uh, Christopher, quite a strong warning there from the US Defence Secretary on defence spending, wasn't it? It was. Uh, let's put it in perspective. The world financially is in freefall. Uh, if you look even today, uh, the British uh, economy is being re- growth is being revised downwards. We're going to have to print more money, etc. The whole of Europe's like this thing. Think, think about some of the key European uh, nations. Greece, got a problem. Italy, NATO nation, another problem. Spain, Lisbon or Portugal. France, part of its banks are in trouble, even, even the Belgians. The whole of Europe has got a problem in the Eurozone and outside the Eurozone. Therefore, when you come to the addition that's put on you, and they say, right, we want 2% growth in defence spending, the chances are it ain't going to happen. And therefore, America looks around and says, well, look, we've got a $450 billion cut in our defence budget. It's likely to go up to a trillion within eight years. You have that same problem. It is universal. So you can't say, but you've got to do it. Now, can I just make one quick point about Panetta? He says, when we came out of Vietnam, we came out of North, we came out of the Korean War, the, the wall between the Soviet Union or the USSR and the West came down. What did we all do? We cut our defense budgets. Mm. So what we've now got to do, he says, is go to the people who eventually got to pay and say to them, look, we just had a success. We seem to be having a success, a result in Libya. Use that as an example of what NATO can do. But the problem is, who pays? In what kind of state do you think NATO is? Because on the one hand, um, we had uh, the Defence Secretary and um, the Foreign Secretary saying at the Conservative Party conference that it proves that NATO is working well, what happened in Libya, for example. But on the other hand, you did hear Leon Panetta saying that um, it does show there is a capability gap. There is a capability gap, but you see, we are now talking about NATO as we always should have been, uh, as the coalition of the willing and the capable. For example, NATO doesn't have its own intelligence service, therefore it doesn't have its own intelligence analysis. When in Libya uh, they wanted to know what they should be looking at and where they should be going, who was it? The Americans had to come along and say, OK, we can give you the intelligence on that. What about tanker refuelling? Not everybody's got it. What about the sort of aircraft maintenance? Not everybody's got it. We don't expect NATO to have it in isolation, but certain countries have got more. And the truth is the coalition of the uh, willing becomes, in, in Libya, for example, uh, led by France and the United Kingdom, with America very quietly giving a strong backup. Uh, very briefly, uh, Christopher, the NATO ministers' meeting isn't really just about finances, though, is it? What is actually on the agenda? Ah, right. Um, if Afghan- you can be brief about okay, it. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, is Libya a result? Did it work? What 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 was NATO's uh, capability there? Same sort of thing with Afghanistan as we move towards 2014 and the withdrawal. Also in Kosovo, where we've got uh, Albanians and Serbs. Uh, still at each other's throats. That's got to be tackled. Uh, We've got a piracy of the Somalian coast. That's going to be tackled. But eventually it comes down to dollars, euros, and whatever other currency you're dealing with. Well, for more on this subject, let's just bring in uh, James Blitz, the defence correspondent for the Financial Times. Thanks for your time today, James. Um, It does all sound rather worrying. How much impact could this economic instability have on European security, do you think? I think it's having a lot of um, a very big impact indeed. 
I mean, as Christopher has said, <clears throat> you first of all got the the huge cut that is happening in the U.S. Uh, defense bu- budget, currently four hundred and fifty billion dollars, but could well go up to nine hundred billion. But what you've seen in Europe, in our own country, and you'll see in France after next year's presidential election, is significant cuts in spending because that that is the area w- which is going. And the problem you've got is that across the 27 countries of the European Union, you've got so much duplication of capability that you really need to iron that out. And that's what Panetta was talking about. He's basically saying, look, you've got to try and coordinate more because you're duplicating far too much and therefore wasting the valuable cash you've got. But these are big problems. James, do you think that's realistic, though, to coordinate the defence cuts across Europe? Well, we've seen some progress on that. As you know, last year France and Britain signed an important treaty, or two treaties, which helped us coordinate a bit of what we're doing in terms of carrier deployment after 2020 and so on, a little work work on the nuclear field. But it is very difficult to press ahead with some countries. Germany is proving incredibly difficult to get round the table to actually share capability. It seems to be very much turned in on itself. And as I say, a lot of countries actually regard defence spending as a way of boosting defence procurement in their own country and therefore preserving jobs. And, of course, the other thing that happened in Libya, which is absolutely key is that Germany and Poland, of course, weren't part of the operation. And if you're going to get cooperation in defence, you've got to have trust. And while the French and the British are trusting each other at the moment a good deal, there's not much trust about the Germans and the Poles, both in London and Paris. So do you see Europe as weak and vulnerable, or indeed becoming so? I do. I think over the next ten years, you are going to see such a significant reduction in capability, and you're going to see the US not only facing its own budgetary pressures, but also seeing what's happening in China. It regards China and Asia as much more where the security threat is. That I think what you're going to see is that the Europeans are, in the end, going to face an external shock. I don't know what it is at the moment. It might be something to do with the resurgence of Russia. We just don't know. But there is going to be a shock which finally turns this thing round. But right now, you are seeing such a a huge reduction in European capability that behind the scenes it is seriously worrying top people in national defence ministries. Christopher Lee, when times are tight, I suppose people are thinking about themselves, really, aren't they? What they can afford at home. They're not thinking about how much we can spend on defence. No, if you've got a health service, if you've got a uh, law and order problem, etc., that's where, in, in theory, the money goes. I'll give you two thoughts. Next May, there is a NATO summit in Chicago That is going to be, I think, the point where we will actually see laid out the true state of NATO. The second thing that we've got to think about, I mean, James was talking about what is the likely threat, which we don't really know. Try energy security. Try the problem of supplying energy throughout Europe. That's when people react. James Blitz, a final thought from you. I think, as Christopher has said, the real problem we've got at the moment is that Government leaders don't want to address this issue of security, of of common security threats. They're so worried about the euro crisis and the economic crisis that they're looking to to the security agenda to keep things calm. But it can't really go on like that. As Christopher says, next next May in Chicago, the next NATO summit, will be a big test of whether the alliance can actually get together and erode some of this duplication that exists, or whether we're just going to see capabilities coming down more and more. All right, James Blitz, Defence Correspondent for the Financial Times. Thanks for your time. This is BFBS. Sit, Rep. 
The Prime Minister has expressed his pride in the armed forces at this week's Conservative Party conference. David Cameron also reiterated his confidence in the operations in both Afghanistan and Libya. The Defence Secretary, Liam Fox, also appeared to be emerging from the painful decisions taken in the Strategic Defence and Security Review with a renewed sense of purpose. Even after the MOD's contribution to deficit reduction, we still have the fourth largest defence budget in the world. Our programme is both affordable and achievable. And to fund our commitments, we will raise the defence equipment budget by 1% over and above the rate of inflation. However, it's not just the armed forces that need to change, but the Ministry of Defence itself. The past year has seen some of the most radical reforms in a generation. James Hurst was at the conference in Manchester for BFBS and joins me now. Uh, James, not a great deal said on defence overall, but did you get the sense that the Tories have turned the page? I certainly got a sense that Liam Fox has turned the page and, and, and is trying to get everybody else to turn the page. I, I mean, you can overanalyse, but, but look at some of the language he used. Uh, he said, I have been determined to get the Ministry of Defence back into shape. Uh, an early draft I saw had, I am determined. He is trying to give a sense that actually the, the work is being done. We have restructured the MOD, overhaul budgetary control reform procurement. His speech was about a list of things he thinks he and the government have achieved in defence in the last year, whereas a year ago he was pretty much bracing the party for the cuts that were to come. He got a standing ovation. I don't think you can read too much into that but, but, but because, you know, people do tend to get standing ovations. Uh, talking to people in the conference, still some concerns, but no real dissent, no real sense of we sh- we, what were we thinking on defence cuts and Liam Fox trying to move on. And yet it was widely speculated that the Defence Secretary would announce that he plugged that uh, black hole in defence. And he didn't do that. He stopped short, didn't he? Yeah, I, I saw a report a week or so ago saying that he was going to say, in their words, job done. Now, he certainly didn't say that. As I say, the, the language was, you know, we're, we're moving forward. We've signed 27 defence agreements around the world, etc. Et I am told uh, that privately he is pretty confident that that black hole is down to single figures in billions from 38 billion as they put it that he might be even more confident than that that didn't come out in the speech i'm not quite sure why i mean you could speculate there might have been a change of political direction actually for the for the whole of that foreign affairs section at the end of the conference there is an interesting political point i was wondering as well if you say the black hole is closed actually it can be less of a political tool with which to beat your opponent and labor actually do contest that 38 billion pound figure so uh, it wasn't said maybe he's planning to say it in the near future maybe uh, they're not feeling they're quite there yet both he and the foreign secretary spoke up for nato citing libya as proof it works and criticizing the european partners who aren't contributing enough they say uh, are they desperate to keep america sweet well i tell you what they're desperate for here it, not so much to keep america sweet but to stop european allies pulling away from their efforts into NATO and focusing it on the European Union. That's what it was. That was where the big political attack was here against those European nations who want a European defence headquarters. Uh, as, he, as Dr Fox said, it's spending money that we don't need to spend when we are reducing the size of NATO headquarters. Um, and, you know, it, remember that 
Robert Gates, as you mentioned, Leon Panetta, Robert Gates at the last NATO Defence Ministers meeting had a real pop at some European nations saying, you've got to put the money in, you've got to pull your weight. We've, we've seen America trying to get more hands off and get the others involved. I think that in part, though, was all part of the political narrative, as I said at the end of this conference. It was a bit of a Eurosceptic end. Uh, Christopher, uh, briefly, the Defence Secretary appeared to be suggesting that as far as cuts are concerned, the painful headlines are all out there. Uh, he cited the investment gains that he'd uh, secured from the Treasury. Uh, do you think the worst is over? No. It's certainly not over. And one of the reasons he didn't say certain things that James has alluded to is the fact that Bernard Gray and Peter Levine, the two guys that he really relies on to put all this into shape, are not actually satisfied that it's worked as advertised. They're really not. The other thing is the department is going again before the House of Commons Defence Committee and the Public Accounts Committee. And one of the reasons he's, he's not saying that the, the black holes are plugged uh, is because he knows that they know and they will take evidence to prove that it's not, so he's not going to do anything like that. The other thing about, well, the Europeans are not, not all Europeans are pulling their weight. 4th of April, 1949, NATO was formed. Since that date, and people have joined, nobody's left, people have joined. Since that date, the figures have always been the same. Five countries have done all the work. The rest have all failed. All right, James, thanks for your time today. No um, now, this week, uh, we saw a brave war hero retire from frontline service. Buster, a nine-year-old Springer Spaniel, served two tours of Afghanistan, two of Bosnia, and several months in Iraq with the RAF police. The arms and explosive sniffer dog saved countless lives in Helmand province by finding explosive vests, which led to the arrest of two suicide bombers. He's not turning his back on the military, though. He's got a new post as the RAF police mascot. Uh, Christopher, the work of these military dogs is it's amazing, isn't it? Oh, Always has been. Uh, in World War Two. World there was a dog called Rip, um, and I think I think it fetched out uh, more than a hundred people from the Blitz uh, that, that had been buried under, under thing. And they gave him the VC, the the Maria Dickin Award, and she was the person that founded you know the PDSA. But don't forget, twenty six dogs have got this. I think what's more interesting is that 32 pigeons and one cat have also had this VC. <laughs> Let's hear it for the cats and the pigeons. OK, and on that note, we must leave it. Uh, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Christopher Lee and all our guests. Tell us what you think, whether it be your thoughts on 10 years in Afghanistan or the future of NATO by following us on Twitter at BFBS Sitrep. Or you can email us. The address is sitrep at bfbs.com. We're back at the same time next week. So from me, Kate Jabo, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. This is Sit Rep on BFBS.